Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know. Steve a minute to catch his breath and collect his thoughts and take a moment here to say how good God is because those of us that have been here for a while, some of us go back 17 years, have seen people come and go and a lot of people have showed up, took a while to get here but they've showed up and it's a blessing when somebody shows up like this man here who can step up and be a big part of the church and do God's work. And I hope you appreciate him as much as I do. I'm glad Steve came to be part of this body. Luann, you too. <laughs> it has been a blessing to have you here. And uh, let's hear what Steve has on his mind and may God bless his thoughts. Okay, now my knees are shaking even more. <laughs> Actually, this sermon, or a version of it, which probably should never, ever be thought of again, I preached more than 40 years ago. And I was looking at it, and I thought, you know what? There's a whole lot I need to change in there. But the beginning is simply this. It's fascinating to look into the Scriptures and see what the Scriptures say when they begin a verse or a statement, God is. I actually looked in my uh, ESV version of PC Study Bible and I just typed in God is in the concordance. 
182 references and 179 verses. And as I go through those, I find references to things like Exodus is just chock full of the expression, the land God is giving you. And every one of those is accompanied with a warning. And there are lots of expressions like that through the scriptures that say God is. But we're going to look at three things, starting with this understanding. The premier attribute of God is holiness. You will go many places today, and when someone is asked, what's God's most important attribute? Well, it's love. I'm sorry, that is not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures teach that we serve a holy God. His sovereignty is derived from his holiness. Everything is derived from his holiness. Now, what do I mean by that? Just so we don't misunderstand. In fact, our pastor talked about this within the last few weeks. Holy simply means separate. And God will always be separate from his creation. We look forward to billions of years in his presence. I can't even begin to imagine the things we're going to learn, the things we're going to experience in the eternal state. But God will always be God and we will never be God. Because God is separate. God is holy. But with that understanding, there are three other things that are, and there are, there are many more. There are many more. It, it's just kind of fun reading through a concordance and looking at the verses that say, God is this, God is that. But I want to look at three. Having said that God's most important attribute is not love, I still want to look at that. It means something to me. In the book of 1 John, we read some interesting verses. 1 John chapter 4, we'll read through verse 19. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in, in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Once again, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world." There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
we love because he first loved us. Amen. There is just so much we could, we could examine in that passage of scripture. But look again at verse 8. God is love. This is not a because of kind of love. I love my wife. My wife does some wonderful things for me. My wife does way more for me than I do for her. And I love her because of those things. This isn't an if love. I'm not going to stop loving my wife when the time comes that she stops doing those things for me, as will happen. This is an in spite of kind of love. God's love is the type of love in which he chooses to love the object of his love. It's a rational love, not an emotional or utilitarian love. In other words, he didn't fall in love with us. I always hate it when I hear it said, hey, that young couple, they fell in love. Isn't it glorious? It's so romantic. Well, let me tell you something. 20 years down the road, it ain't going to be the same. And if such a couple does not learn that they must choose to love even when their partner does not seem very lovely, the marriage is not going to succeed. We are not lovely. The scriptures are very clear that there is nothing attractive in us at all. Every good thing in us, he gave us. And yet he chooses to love us. We've been looking in recent weeks at God's choice of Israel. In fact, we're going to get to that a little bit later on under another one of these God is phrases. God chose to love Israel and they never were lovely. During the time of King David, part of King Solomon's reign, it may have been a kingdom as God wanted it to be. But God knew what they would do and God knew that they did it. Just in a very brief period of time, they began to turn away. Even Solomon worshipped idols other than the true God. And it destroyed his testimony. But God had made a promise that David's son would sit on the throne forever. So God makes a promise to us as well. Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Sometimes I stop and think about the sins that I have committed in my life and I think, how, how can I ever set foot in heaven? Oh, wait, well, I'm better than Ted Bundy. Really? No, I'm a sinner. I have violated God's command. My sin is like crimson, or 
wait a minute, it was like crimson because Christ washed me white as snow. And that's how I'm going to get into heaven because God loves me and God chose me to be an inhabitant of heaven. God is love and because of that we have every confidence. And we love it's been it's been fun watching over the past few weeks what this church has done to help people who have been injured. Whether it's going to pick up Conrad or going to visit Marilyn or going to visit Betty, all the things that people have done, it's just amazing to watch. Now, why do we do those things? Because God loves us, and therefore we love. God's love for us resulted in an action that is so beneficial to us who are in Christ. We read about it in verse 10 of 1 John chapter 4. And this is love, not that we have loved God, because we didn't. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. And our hope depends on that. He loved us and therefore he sent his son to die for us. But if you go back to the beginning of 1 John, we find another God is statement. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John's still really in his introduction here. But he makes this statement. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much do we need that verse 9? I mean, I already mentioned sometimes that feeling that hits me. How can God love someone like me? And yet... There's John telling us in the first chapter that God forgives those sins. Not because we deserve it, because he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there's a lot in me that needs to be cleansed. Now, I don't know if you were paying attention. If you were just mouthing the words as we sang the hymns today, you missed the reason that I picked a bunch of them. How else is the light of God described? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. Now, those are all attributes of God, are they not? And we emphasize them in this church. And then he writes, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Do you know in Greek that word unapproachable means literally unapproachable? (laughs) Light was the very first thing God created. Let there be light. And then God manipulated that light. God made lights after the fact. You know, our light comes from the sun, right? At night, the sun reflects off the moon. We see some stars so we can, you know, have a little light in the darkness. But God made the light first. Light is a symbol of God's holiness. Why is that? Let me ask you a question. Can you touch light? There's a light right here. It's illuminating the things on the pulpit. I can touch the bulb. Is this a hot bulb? Okay, I won't touch it. It actually feels warm as and it's lighting my hand. But I can't touch light. Light touches me. I can't touch it. How about this? Can you make light dirty? No. 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 Light may show some dirty things. Okay, in our early years, we lived a couple of places that weren't very pleasant. And uh, one of them was a children's home for emotionally disturbed teenagers. And we lived in a building that looked just gorgeous, all stone. It was divided into uh, uh, the girls' unit and the intermediate unit, and uh, I forget. Anyway, we were in one of the units working with these emotionally disturbed teenagers, and sometimes I would go in the communal bathroom and turn on the lights, and the walls would move (coughs) as the cockroaches scurried to get out of the light. Disgusting. The light showed them. They were there all the time. But when I would flip on the light switch, boom, you could see them. Sometimes you turn on the light, oh, maybe you've got a messy basement, I don't know. And you turn on the lights, oh, wow. And then there are other times where the light is shining on the beach in Destin. And you're just watching the light as it reflects off the waves as they come in. And it's beautiful. You can't make that light dirty. The clouds may block it for a time. But if there's anything emitting light, you can't make it look like anything but light. Christ spoke of this in John chapter 3, verse 19 and 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. The unredeemed individual is kind of like the cockroach. You turn on the light and he scurries to get away from it because his deeds are evil. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. One of the things that I appreciate being in this church is that from time to time, even though what our pastor teaches is, you know, everybody knows what he teaches. You've known it since before you could talk, probably. (laughs) We know what he teaches, and yet as he faithfully expounds the scriptures... Sometimes he comes across something and repeats something I've heard a hundred times before. And it's as if somebody turned on the light switch. Wait a minute. I've read that verse who knows how many times, and I never saw that before. God sheds light because God is light. And we must rejoice in that. Sometimes God sheds the light and we don't like it very much. And sometimes that happens as the pastor is preaching. Because all of a sudden, you know, as they say, he's left preaching and gone to meddling. Because all of a sudden he's addressing my particular sin. Why don't you leave that subject and go back to the sovereignty of God? I like that. No, God is light. His word is light. Everything about God sheds light. And we must not only rejoice in that, but sometimes repent because the light shines. Because that takes us to a third statement. The first time I ever heard this passage, I was at a Christian camp as a teenager. I have to say I wasn't much of the student of the scriptures. And the, uh, what did they call him? The camp pastor maybe? At any rate, he was the speaker every night, chapel in the morning, etc. And he pretty much stayed in the book of Hebrews the whole time he preached. I have no idea what he preached. I couldn't tell you what he said about Hebrews. That was a long time ago. But I remember this very clearly. For some reason, we were having an evening service. I think it started at 9.30 at night. This is after a full day of camp activities and so on. So we're sitting there trying to stay awake. And he starts reading. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Even indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, And to innumerable angels in festal gathering, 
to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Wow, that's pretty good company. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a king that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's exactly how he did it. He said, hey, they got me preaching at 10 o'clock at night. I got to do something to keep you awake. Never forgot that. God is a consuming fire. By the way, that's a quote from Deuteronomy. This is one of six warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Now, Paul, or Paul, the writer of Hebrews, let's say it right, because I don't know who wrote it. The writer of Hebrews make statements and you know it was it was great hearing the company that we're in we're coming to Jesus the mediator of this new covenant etc and so forth and then he gives the warning because our God is a consuming fire mm-hmm. one of six such warning passages in the book this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter tw- or 4 Verses 22 to 24. And if you go back and read all of Deuteronomy chapter 4, what you find is Moses repeating over and over this warning. When you get into the land, do not forget the law that was given on the mountain. Because what you're going to do is you're going to become comfortable in the land and you're going to turn away to idols. You're going to turn away to other gods. Don't do that. For I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. At the end of Moses' life, he repeatedly and strongly warns against idolatry. Do not turn away from the God who brought you out of Egypt. Now Moses didn't always deal with a consuming fire, did he? The fire of Moses' first encounter with God was not a consuming fire. As a matter of fact, he marveled because the bush wasn't consumed. I have no idea how God did that. The laws of physics are laws that God made, and if He wants to change them at any point, He can do so. And He has done so. You know, you can't walk on water, but Jesus did. 
you can't take five loaves and two fishes and feed thousands of people. Can barely feed me. <laughs> and yet Jesus did. You can't take a person who's lying, prepared to be buried, being carried on the way to the place of burial and reach out and touch them and say, rise. You especially can't take a person who's been decaying for four days. Take the tomb, the, the stone away from the tomb. Uh, well, well, we can't do that, Lord. He's going to stink by now. Just do what I said. And then... Lazarus come forth. I've heard it said that if he had specified Lazarus, all the dead would have come out of their graves. That's probably pushing it. But he addressed this friend who had died four days before. And Jesus could have made, there, made it there in time to heal his illness. And he didn't. He waited until he had been in the tomb for four days and raised him from the dead. You can't do that. Now I guarantee you that if you hang on a cross for hours and you die and somebody sticks a spear into your heart and blood and water come out. I read a medical description of that once upon a time. It was a clear indication that Christ was dead because the blood was separating you put that person in a tomb, they, they are never coming out. But Christ did. And consequently, one day, if I die before he returns, he's going to call my name and say, come forth. Wow. And yet, we find this expression given by Moses in warning saying that our God is a consuming fire. How consuming can he be? In 1 Kings chapter 18 there's a really fascinating story. Elijah had said there's going to be a drought and there was a drought. By the way, the reason there's going to be a drought, Ahab, is because of your sin, your idolatry, the way you're treating the, the, the people of God. It's not going to rain until I say so. Wow. Until I say so. <coughs> Only way he could say that was if God told him to. And so Ahab's looking for any source of water, and he sends um, Oholiab who, by the way, was a true servant of God and had saved the lives of some prophets that Jezebel tried to kill. And Ahab goes one way, and Aholiab goes the other, and Elijah meets Aholiab and says, go get Ahab. And Aholiab says, if I tell him you're here, he's going to kill me. You know, slay the messenger. Just do it. Ahab comes to meet Elijah and says, is it you, the troubler of Israel? And... Elijah responds, you're the one who troubles Israel. Um, Elijah was one man. Ahab had an army. 
he had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets, I don't know if they were prophets or prophetesses of Asherah. Elijah's by himself, except God's with him. And he says, bring all those people. Bring them to Mount Carmel. We're going to settle this today. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull. Whichever one, you pick the one. Choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. Everybody likes a sign, right? Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered, because there was no one there. And they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself. A little bit earthy there. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. I mean, he might be taking a nap, your God. Wake him up. And they cried aloud and, and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Wow, that's the kind of God I want to worship, don't you? And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, and according to the law, they had to be undressed stones. They hadn't been shaped in any way. He took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. That's a fairly deep trench. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. Wow, we're ready finally. Because he's already done a whole lot of work. And then he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Wait a minute, there's a drought, don't you understand? Water's scarce and we're thirsty. No, four jars of water, pour it on the offering. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, now, now compare this. 
all morning and into the afternoon, 450 prophets of Baal have been wailing to their God. They've been cutting themselves so they bleed profusely. And there was no answer. And Elijah says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Wow, that was a long prayer. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Did you ever try to burn a stone? And the fire from God just burned it all. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Consuming fire is a symbol of God's capability to destroy sin. God hates sin and He must destroy it. And He will as a consuming fire. Though the fire of hell is not God... It is no mistake that sinners will suffer in fire for eternity. Now we were looking at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and talking about the fact Moses said, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. But he continues on in verse 25. When you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Have we not been hearing this from Ezekiel over the past few weeks? And then he says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. That kind of brings us back full circle to where we started. God chose to love Israel. And he's never forgotten that love. God chose to love us. And in the same way, he has never forgotten that love. Once again, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment that, in our case, all fell on Christ. There is so much more. I mean, I don't think anybody's ever touched Stephen Charnock's book, The Existence and Attributes of God. For a little lighter reading, you can read A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy. But studying what God is like is always worthwhile. We worship a holy God who demands 
absolute and utter perfection and finds it in his son and applies that perfection because he loves us. I think a billion years from now, I'm still going to ask the question, why did you love me? And I think he's still going to say, because I chose to. <laughs> I think I'm going to know a little bit more about God in a billion years. But there are some questions that are beyond our human capacity, even our redeemed human capacity. What an awesome God we serve. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.